Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. If you are interested in learning more about our organization, please go to georgiamta.org. Today, we are joined by Martha Thomas. Hello, Martha. Hi there. Let's get started. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Okay, well, I am actually newly retired from the University of Georgia, where I taught for 35 years. Um, but I'll go back um, a little bit before that. So I grew up in Austin, Texas, and started piano there when I was about nine. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I just fell in love with it and it sort of chose me perhaps is the way you could explain it and you probably know there's a great university there in austin ut austin university of texas at austin and so i did my bachelor's degree there in piano and then i went to wisconsin university of wisconsin madison did my master's and then came back to ut austin to do my doctorate and my first teaching job was in Wisconsin at University of Wisconsin Stevens Point. They have a lot of universities in Wisconsin, all part of the UW system, just like we have a USG system here in Georgia. And um, I taught at Stevens Point for seven years, and then I came down to the University of Georgia, and I just retired as of August 1st. Wow. So Congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. So um, a couple of follow up questions to that. It's always interesting to ask people how they ended up in the schools that they ended up. I mean, it seems like being from Texas, UT Austin would have been an obvious choice, but it's interesting that you left UT to get your master's elsewhere and then return back to UT. Tell us about that process. Okay, well, um... I started studying with my first college professor when I was a sophomore in high school, actually, William Race. And so he was at UT Austin, and so it just made sense that I would go to school there. Also, it was probably at the time becoming one of the major piano programs in the country. Um, and there were just so many stellar pianists there when, when I was there as an undergrad. It was just an amazing sort of hothouse of, <laughs> of pianists. Pianists kind of ruled the roost too for a while. And then I evidently, I told this to one of my friends in high school that, I, and I don't even remember telling this person this, but that I wanted to go to a cooler climate. And I was determined. So my my professor had recommended someone in Wisconsin and recommended a university, UW-Madison. And so I ended up getting accepted there with an assistantship and then went to school there. And it's kind of complicated the next part, but I'll just abbreviate it by saying uh, I taught for a while and then I realized probably to keep my career going, I would need to get a doctorate which was true and it seemed to me the maybe best choice was to do uw i mean ut austin again and interestingly in the time since i had been gone so that was about six years or so or seven i don't know seven years or something 
Um, they had moved to a new building and a whole lot of new faculty had come on board. And so I actually had none of the same professors. I had completely different professors. At that time, they had sort of imported the Eastman theory faculty <laughs> to UT Austin. And um, I just ended up having some fantastic professors and great experiences. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, that does. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we're going to be all over the timeline, I think, in, in this interview, but I want to ask about retirement as someone that is still uh, in the middle of my career, or maybe even towards the beginning of my career, what is retirement like? Is it everything that we dream of? <laughs> I'm sure for every person, it's different. Um I've only been at it a little bit over a month, and so I really can't say what it's like. But I think the one of the nice aspects for me is I'm I'm still here in Athens, Georgia, where I was living for teaching at University of Georgia. And for example, last night I got to go to a concert featuring our University Symphony Orchestra. And David Fung, one of our piano faculty, uh, was performing the Ravel Piano Concerto, the G major piano concerto. And just to have that down the road, you know, 15 minutes or less from my house is, is just quite wonderful. So to be able to still participate sort of artistically is, is really gratifying. I'm also, <laughs> and this is going to date me, so I actually have CDs the physical CDs and I have a big collection and I'm trying to slowly go through and listen to them. <laughs> you know, some of them, of course, I've heard years and years ago, but it's like, I don't even remember what they sounded like. So that's another goal. Lots of reading, lots of catching up with friends. And unfortunately, um, I had the privilege to go to a funeral yesterday. Uh, with Aurelia, for Aurelia Campbell, one of uh, GMTA's, MTNA's 50-year member. Um, she was a student of Despi Carlos, and I'm a former Despi Carlos professor of piano at UGA. And uh, she was just sort of legendary, not, in, not only in GMTA, but in MTNA. Mm -hmm. And I think she was the first GMTA member to be certified, nationally certified. So... That was that was a real honor and privilege. I mean, we're going to miss her terribly, but that's something that's nice about being retired. You have a little bit open schedule. Yeah, that's so sweet. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so now I'll get back to our official list of interviews and we'll kind of work our way chronologically. Um, do you have a favorite memory of your teachers that you can share with us? Sure. So I had three main professors, so I'll kind of go through them chronologically. So my first professor, I've already mentioned his name, William Race, Bill Race at UT Austin. And I still remember the very first lesson I had. I remember other things, too, but I'll just focus on the first lesson. So I was in high school and he was a brilliant pianist with a really beautiful, elegant sound and a elegant way of playing. And so he wanted to work on scales. Well, I'd been playing scales since my first piano lesson many years before. So I thought, okay, we'll work on scales. But the way that he worked on scales was unlike anything I had ever done before. Digging down to the nth degree of complexity 
technically speaking, and with the sound, of course, they go together. And it just opened my eyes. And I thought, what a fantastic world of music making this was. And it sort of changed my life, you know, for how to practice, how to listen, and how to make changes very, very quickly on a um, big scale or minute scale. So anyway, that that was just so exciting. Can you yeah. tell us some of the things that he told you or instructed you or was looking no. I don't remember all the details, but I do remember that feeling that I described, but what it was, he, you know, a lot of times, and I know I do this with students or did this with students too, we would work on scales hands together, but this, the hands are not necessarily coordinated in the same way. So of course he then would take it hands separate and what you want, at least his goal for scales was very smooth rhythm very smooth sound mm -hmm. so no bumps no accents uh, nothing faster nothing slower and his listening was he could listen so acutely he can hear any deviation from the norm and then he would stop well first you have to identify like well maybe it's up high well there's a lot of high notes which high note <laughs> so just learning to listen very specifically. Okay, it's when the thumb goes under. So what's the thumb doing? Well, we, we don't know. And so you just keep asking questions. So you go down la layer after layer after layer. So maybe this is a simple one, but maybe the wrist is dropping, right? When the thumb goes under, so it's making an accent. So then you just don't drop your wrist. But I think with me, it was a lot more complicated than that. I don't think that's what I was doing, but he would analyze it so that you would see the absolute, it's the A in this octave, it's the second finger, and it's not doing something or it is doing something that's problematic, and then how to fix it. Mm -hmm. And you know, most teachers would just say, just put the metronome on and get quarter equals 60. That's your assignment for next week, next, next piece. You know, and so that's not what he did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just working to an incredible level of detail that I aspire to, but <laughs> I'm not sure I ever reached his level, but just acute, acute listening, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier you said the phrase learning to listen, and I really like that. Uh, we think that we've been listening our whole lives, but we actually have to learn to listen. Yeah. With one of my students, he was incredibly coordinated, very gifted, could play anything. But I think he finally started making progress when he learned to listen. And that took, well, he did it fast, but it took at least a year mm. with him not really listening very carefully to all of a sudden, it was as if he became a different pianist wow. from, from listening. Yeah. Well, um, you can continue. Sorry, I interrupted you earlier. Okay. Favorite memory of teachers. Okay, so my next major professor was Howard Karp. He was my professor at UW-Madison. And quite interestingly, he was a student of Rosina Levine, famous Juilliard professor. He was in the same class with John Browning and Van Cliburn. 
So I always thought Van Cliburn's name was Van Cliburn, like Ludwig Van Beethoven or something. But Van was his first name. And I did. I'm from Texas. Van Cliburn's from Fort Worth, Texas. I didn't know that. So Howard started talking about Van. I thought, Van. And I realized I was pretty ignorant, didn't realize that. But um, he always said that they didn't realize how gifted and talented and beautifully uh, Van Cliburn played because then he was the first American to win the Tchaikovsky piano competition. So anyway, just to place Howard Karp, he's this incredible esteemed teacher. He was nicknamed the gentle giant. That was always in quotations. He was six foot four. So when he would sit down and I would stand up, we could see eye to eye. <laughs> it's actually true. <laughs> That's just hilarious, but true. But I remember meeting him for the first time. So I had gone up to Wisconsin about a week before classes started, probably had gotten registered. I was exploring the music building. It was a huge building and just getting lost in all the corridors, but found the floor where all the teachers studios were. And a group of us were outside his office listening to him practice. He was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant pianist. And I, I don't remember now what, I don't know what he was practicing. I can't remember, but he came out. He must, we must've made some noise or something. And he came out in the hallway to meet all of us. Of course, here he is, this very tall, imposing figure. And I'm a little bit scared, you know, and then we int all introduced ourselves. Of course, this is the first time he's, we hadn't even had a lesson or anything, no studio class yet. He's meeting us all for the first time. And he shook my hand and he looked at me and he said, oh, I've been so looking forward to meeting you. And that just like stopped me cold. I thought, you've been looking forward to meeting me. Here he is this, obviously I'd already heard him practicing and playing this phenomenal pianist. He could, he could play literally anything and it taught me right then how important respect is for teachers and he respected me so i in turn respected him of course my teacher but then i always wanted to carry that through to my students and i tried i hope i managed to show respect to my students i think it's just the one of the foundations of teaching. Okay, the next teacher, Danielle Martin, she was my uh, doctoral professor, major professor at UT Austin for my doctorate. Okay, she was a student of Jack Radunsky at Oberlin and Leon Fleischer. She was a wonderful teacher. She was my only female teacher and she was about the same height and size as me. So that was really helpful for technique and all kinds of things that I learned so many things from her that these other men with much, much bigger hands and, you know, bigger, bigger stretch, they just couldn't maybe comprehend and didn't know about perhaps. So, but one of the <laughs> funny memories I have of her is that the nice, well, this is not very good, maybe. Oh, well, I'll say it anyway. One of the, um, the nicer she got in the lesson and the quieter she got, 
the worse you knew you were doing. So when she would finally say, now dearie, <laughs> then you knew you'd hit rock bottom. And that was, no matter what you had practiced the week before, you were gonna have to start over. So you hadn't understood what she had said. And she was always striving for me to play with a better legato, with more color, more imagination, all very good things. So I just remembered the dearie. <laughs> but she was a great teacher for sort of tricks of the trade and showing you how to accomplish something technically when maybe you thought you couldn't do it. Well, I love that. Thank you for sharing those stories. So um, we're going to walk back further into your past and history. Do you remember what piece from your musical studies as a child got you hooked on music? So I think it had already started lessons when the story I'll tell you when that took place. But I think it probably solidified my interest. So I remember, so again, this shows my incredible old age here. I remember uh, watching the Danny Thomas TV show. So some of the people out there in Zoom land will, will know this. And I can't remember if it was his actual daughter in real life, Margot Thomas, or if it was the daughter on the TV show. Anyway, the daughter on the TV show, whoever she was, was playing Beethoven's Minuet in G. And that piece was in one of my books, but I hadn't gotten to it yet. And I just remember thinking, okay, I've got, I've got to learn that. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I think I just, um, I started playing at friends' houses because all of my friends had pianos. Then once, I, and then I asked for a piano and then I asked for lessons. And then once I started lessons, I just wanted to keep going. Mm. So what was practicing like for you as a child? Were you fairly self-motivated? So no one ever had to make me practice. So that was hard for me as a teacher because I remember being shocked that people weren't practicing because no one had ever told me to practice. Now, I mean, teachers had suggested it and said, you need to do 15 minutes a day or play this five times or fix this and keep doing, going till you fix it, you know. So I had had those kinds of guidelines, but my mother, my parents never had to resort, you know, to putting the timer on the piano and then rewarding me if I practice for five minutes or something, you know, nobody's ever said, had to set a stopwatch or something. Um, so I totally never understood people that studied but didn't want to practice. Okay, so this leads us to an interesting follow-up. What did you do with students that didn't practice? Oh, so I just had to really work at it. You know, I would suggest ways they could practice. And sometimes what you have to do with a student is figure out what their learning style is. Um, I remember one of my students, well, some, okay, I worked with college students. So sometimes they have just crazy schedules, you know, they have so many classes. And when you're so busy, it's hard to get your mind to be quiet enough to focus on practicing. But some people just, so some people like 
oh, I don't know where that went. Anyway, a lot of time to practice. Some people just want a few minutes and you have to decide what kind of person your student is, or you have to work with them to find out that information. So this one student, we decided he would practice in 15 minute increments, hmm. which is bizarre for piano. Like some pieces last longer than 15 minutes and he was playing hard pieces. I mean, he had auditioned with Mozart 332, you know, the third movement or something. So he could play the piano, um, but he just didn't have a long concentration attention span. Hmm. And so then we also did piano diary where you set your goals the day before or the morning of your practice session or something. And you say, 10 minutes on this, you know, you think of a pie, a 60 minute pie and 10 minutes on review, five minutes on scales or 10 minutes on Bach, you know, you do like that. So sometimes that can really help with some students. Maybe it's just helping them. Oh, a lot of students always wanted to spend too much time on a piece. Hmm. Like they would just stay there for an hour on a short piece and helping them set maybe more concrete goals than just stay there for an hour and really get nothing accomplished. So I think setting goals can really help and time management can be very important. Also for some students doing a competition or getting doing a recital or just playing one piece on a program can be motivational and then that can help you practice because now you have a goal for practicing. Yeah. Great. Thanks for that. Why are you a musician and teacher? Was there someone who was particularly influential in guiding you to this path? Well, I, years ago, I came across something I had written down when I was about, oh, I started when I was nine. So I'm guessing I wrote this when I was 11 or 12. And I said I wanted to be a concert pianist. Of course, I had no idea what that was. <laughs> but I had forgotten I had written that down. So I, I really sort of think music found me. That was just what I wanted to do. I enjoyed <clears throat> all my subjects in school, you know, I at least in high school and junior high. But by the time I got to college, I just wanted to do music. I don't know why. I loved it passionately. Well, so so you talked about wanting to become a concert pianist, but you really spent a lot of your all of your career being a teacher. How did you become a teacher? Was it a, just a path that chose you also or did you consciously decide at some point that I think it just sort of happened. So I I had really no interest in teaching when I was growing up. I mean, not that I was against it. I just was studying piano, right? And accompanying the choir and playing for the musicals and playing for church and playing competitions and all that sort of stuff. When I was 18, so my guess is I was a freshman in college, I started teaching uh, some neighborhood students. And sometimes I would teach at my house and sometimes I would drive to people's students' homes and teach them there. And it just seemed like a natural outgrowth, I will, I will say. Nobody told me I should do it. Things may be more organized now because of pedagogy programs and pedagogy classes, but 
I was totally unaware of all that at the time. So I, um, I guess I always wanted to be a pianist. And then I sort of felt that that went along with teaching. And the more I learned about practicing and performing, I feel like the better my teaching got. Because I could demonstrate for my students, I could share with them what worked for me for practicing or for technique or for performing or stress and performance anxiety and preparing to play with an orchestra. If you've never done that, it's hard to prepare your students for it, I think. And so um, anyway, I just I sort of felt like they went together. Yeah. What are some of your favorite memories as a teacher? So there's probably way too many, but I will share with you that first lesson. <laughs> so all the pedagogy teachers out there are going to just groan and moan after I tell this story. So my first lesson is when I was 18 and Carrie Lay was my first student. And she was a already a violinist. She might have been nine, but she started Suzuki probably when she was three. So she was already very, very good. So her first piano lesson, <laughs> she was playing something like Bach Minuet and G. First lesson, she could read treble clef and bass clef. She already knew all her meters. She knew how to count, how to read. She knew finger numbers. So unfortunately, I sort of thought, oh, that's how people <laughs> are in their first lesson. <laughs> so I later on, I had to learn that's not really true. But um, so I sort of started at the top, right? <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. Anyway, that's one of my good memories of teaching. Also, I remember when I was pretty young, probably 25, 28, something like that. I was teaching at Wisconsin. I just started teaching and I had all these questions about how to teach. And I would just, I remember every spare second when I wasn't teaching, I was thinking about my teaching and how to solve students' problems. You know, I'd be brushing my teeth and then how do you, how do you explain this? How do you, how do you solve this problem? Well, I thought, oh, I just can't wait till I'm um, like 40 and may I'll have all these questions answered. <laughs> Well, okay, truth here. It doesn't matter how old you get, you never get all your questions answered. And I think the older I got, the more questions there were. Yeah. So when I was younger, I reached the point of feeling pretty confident. <laughs> and then the older you get, it's like you have more and more questions, I think. So that's one of the beauties of teaching is that there's always something more to learn. Yeah. I think that leads beautifully into our next question, which is how do you approach teaching? What is your teaching philosophy? So let me see here. So I have a lot of points about teaching philosophy. So we'll see if I can um, share some of these with you. So I already mentioned one, which is respect, respect your students. I guess another one was that I wanted to start my students where they were. So if it was some brilliant student who already played rings way better than me and where better than I ever could rings around me, then what's my goal? To help them get better, find where are places they can still improve and then help them maybe 
craft a career? What are they going to be good at doing? How can they use their music in their lives? Maybe it's a student who can't even play hands together scales yet. Okay, well, don't berate them for that. They just haven't gotten there. So now my goal is going to be maybe that's one of our goals. We're going to try to eventually get the, you know, hands together with their scales. So wherever the student is in the spectrum from beginner to phenomenal artist, meet them there and then you know, help them improve, help them have success, help them enjoy the process because they're not going to go from beginning to end, you know, right away. So it's, it's going to be hard in spite of the struggles, help them continue and to be proud of what they've accomplished. I think it's important for students to have a vision for themselves and I don't know that this is something I started out intending to do as a teacher, but maybe it's something I learned after I was teaching. For example, one of my former students, I could just tell from the way she made comments during our weekly studio class when all my students, you know, would perform for each other and they would all share comments that she really would make a fabulous teacher. And I didn't know teacher of what music theory or teacher of piano or music ed or something. I wasn't sure, but I could just see she really had that mind, analytical mind. She could uh, understood process, step by step process and procedure, and she could explain things very clearly and concisely. And just I felt like those were hallmarks of a great teacher. Well, she went off and did a master's in an uh, music field, but not in education. And then she went into music education mm -hmm. and she's still a teacher. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like maybe I planted a small seed for that person. And then, you know, it came, it came true later on. Okay. Does that sort of answer your yeah, I, I think that brings me to an interesting question, which um, or a variation of a question that I frequently ask, um, which is what's the balance between work ethic and talent when it comes to determining student success? But this kind of makes me wonder, what is the balance between talent and work ethic when it comes to determining teacher success? Because you're suggesting that, you know, you, you recognize this kind of inherent talent within a student. Is it possible for someone who is not inherently a good teacher to become a good teacher? What do you think? Well, certainly, I would say MTNA believes in that because we have so many education programs, you know, workshops, and now all these uh, online webinars and GMTA does the conference with master classes and all of that. So I would say if someone isn't a very good teacher yet, yes, uh, there is certainly room for improvement and the ability for that person to get better. I. I guess it would mean there needs to be some deep self-reflection mm -hmm. to realize that maybe you need to improve. And then you have to ask yourself, well, where do I need to improve? 
uh, or in what way or ways could I improve? And then you would need to find a way to help that improvement happen. So it's all a little bit complicated, but I think certainly nowadays there's so, uh, so many, um, well, of course, YouTube we have, right? You get all these fabulous videos along with this, the performing and the, the sound. We have a lot of online tutorials. Um, Daniel Barenboim has been doing all these fabulous series and, and talking about the music and so, and many other great artists as well. Um, so you can learn a lot through that. If someone only studied a couple of years for piano or something, go back and do more study. Maybe you need to do another degree, take some pedagogy classes. There are lots of great pedagogy books. Join MTNA and GMTA because of so many resources available. So I would say yes, mm -hmm. uh, there are. And, and even if you're a pretty good teacher or you think you're a great teacher, everyone can still improve and grow and learn. So I don't think there's any end to that, but it has, to, you need to be very um, self-motivated to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Great, I appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, do you have any musical or pedagogical projects that you're currently working on? So I just finished one and then I have one that I'm working on. So um, right before I retired, so in May 2021 this year, my uh, last solo CD came out and I'm saying last because it probably is the last solo CD I'm going to make. So it's my third solo CD with just me on the recording. And I should have called it a real... <laughs> I just realized this recently. I should have called it the pandemic CD because, or the coronavirus COVID CD, because we kept having to put off our final recording session. So I had recorded the bulk of the music, but I still had two more pieces that needed to, I needed to go into the studio to record, but we couldn't do it because I, I couldn't go into the studio because of COVID. Then I kind of lost my motivation to practice and blah, blah, blah. You know, it just wasn't happening. So finally, we all got vaccines and they've shown masks are effective. So I put my mask on and had my vaccine and practiced, maybe not all in that order, and then went into the studio last December 2020 and recorded the final two pieces for this recording. And then it all got pressed and everything and it came out in May. So it's called Echoes Past and Future. And it's produced by ACA Digital and it's on Amazon and you can also stream it on Spotify. It's probably on other platforms as well. And if you want an autographed copy, you can contact me <laughs> in case anybody still can play CDs. Um, I was pretty excited about <laughs> about the project because kind of sad uh, when I first started it all the composers were living so it's from 20th and 21st century and uh, sadly one of the composers passed away in February 2020 and we think it was from COVID more than likely but it features music by Tommy Joe Anderson he is um, 
head of ACA Digital, and he's also a former GMTA president. And he um, handles his company, handles all the recording of the Atlanta Symphony. So um, for their video streaming, and if you hear him on performance today, that's Tommy Joe's company. So I have some music by him. I have some music by Emily Coe. She is a faculty member at UGA, so one of my dear colleagues. And thank you, Emily. She wrote, this was a great piece I found on her website, and then she gave me permission to record it. And then also a piece by Lewis Nielsen, and he is a former UGA professor and a former professor from Oberlin, and he's now retired living in Vermont. The professor who passed away was William Winstead. He was a bassoon professor at the Cincinnati Conservatory. He is very, very famous. He was one of the premier bassoon professors in the country. Phenomenal. And I did have the privilege to perform with him about three years ago, I guess it was. But he was a bassoonist, a composer, a singer, a harpist, a pianist. So kind of a polymath. And he wrote this sonata that's on the recording. So, and he did get to hear me perform it. So that, that is wonderful. Then two other people, Robert Chumbly. So if any UT Austin people from um, the 60s or 70s or 70s are listening, you all know Bob Chumbly's name. So he's a dear friend I've reconnected with and he wrote this piece, Five Bag Bagatelles. So that's fabulous. And then I have a piece by the Pulitzer Prize winning composer Melinda Wagner called Noggin, and it is a phenomenal piece. So it was just a pleasure to get to know all of these composers and connect with them. It was a lot of fun. The project that I'm now working on, I'm working with a pianist in Florida, and this is our second collaboration. We did a CD about five years ago or so. And so these are all fairly recently written works, probably from all the 21st century and some Korean composers and then some American composers, all music for two pianos. That also was pandemically postponed because <laughs> I couldn't travel to Florida and she couldn't travel to Georgia because of COVID. And so now we're kind of forging ahead in spite of Delta variant and we're masking and practicing. <laughs> so that's kind of scary, but exciting at the same time. So we hope to finish that in January. Can I ask why your CD is titled Echoes? We needed a title and we didn't have a title because it's uh, music from 20th and 21st century. It's music by different composers. So there wasn't an easy, obvious title. But I noticed when I was practicing you know how you'll have a subconscious thought like way back here and then it comes up here and then it disappears. <laughs> that would happen every time I was practicing these pieces and I thought, what's going on? And I realized that every piece and the program notes explain this, every piece in that CD has some kind of an echo. For example, Bob Chumbly's Bagatelles. Well, that obviously is a reference to Beethoven and if you know the Beethoven bagatelles, especially um, the late ones, they have this kind of innocuous, nice sound until all of a sudden they become impossibly difficult. There's sort of no happy medium there. 
And that's what his do. They're going along sounding like Rachmaninoff or Scriabin or Messian, and then all of a sudden, whoop, there's something really difficult about it. So it made me think of, even when you're writing in the 21st century, you may be reflecting what came before you. In, let's see, another one, uh, Tommy Joe Anderson, he has a set of variations. And each variation is kind of patterned after a specific composer. So whether it's Bartok, uh, Rachmaninoff, Liszt, and you can sort of hear that. So it's like character variations, I guess we could say. So each of the pieces in the set has some kind of an echo whether it's an internal echo, as in Melinda Wagner's piece, or maybe an echo harkens back to sort of earlier days and earlier times. So I just thought the name echo is sort of appropriate. Yeah, thanks. This is our very last question. Tell me about your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you? So I so it goes way back to my time in Wisconsin. So I was probably, wow, 25 or something, 24, 26, sitting in Wisconsin in my house in the living room, probably a very cold winter night as they were, especially back then, even colder than nowadays, probably. The phone rings. This is the day of landlines, right? No cell phones back then. And on the phone is Carol Winborn, whom I did not know. She taught uh, in a private studio and also at UW Oshkosh, University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. And she introduced herself and then she told me that I needed to join MTNA. <laughs> this is a cold call. And I think she appointed me to the board, <laughs> the WMTA board. I think I was the collegiate chapter board member or something. Of course, I'm not sure I did anything. I had never heard of it, but I joined because Carol told me <laughs> I should. So I'll always remember her for that. Sadly, she has now passed away, but she is the reason that I joined. I met a lot of other great people such as Joyce Grill. Um, she's now, you may know her as a composer with, I think, Alfred, I'm going to say, not positive, um, from La Crosse, Wisconsin. She was a great educator and also a fabulous collaborative pianist. So if you get to check out her compositions, definitely do. So I got on the board. I also was a founding member of the Stevens Point Area Music Teacher Association, so a local association, SPAMTA. <laughs> as it's called. And it's still in existence today. So I started that when I was there. So I was president of that. I came down to Georgia. I was president of Athens Music Teacher Association, president of GMTA, direct Southern Division director. Um, so lots of leader leadership roles. Let me see. I made some notes here. See if there's anything else. Oh, I guess I will say that couple of things MTNA has meant to me. Certainly, I have met so many fabulous people. Yeah, I mean, I met Joyce Grill, I met Carol Winborn, I met Carmen Shaw, and many, many other people in WMTA. And then through GMTA and MTNA, I've like made 
some of the best friends of my life. So that doesn't sound like a good professional reason, but it's one of the byproducts is that you make friends for life, musical, musical friends. Sometimes some great projects have come out. I mean, I remember having lunch or breakfast with somebody and we are talking and then all of a sudden I got an idea for this fantastic project that ended up taking me, I think a CD and then traveling across the world with presentations to Serbia and Australia and other places. So you just never know what can come out of these connections. Oh, and something else I think I've already said earlier today, but I think the fact that they that MTNA and through MTNA GMTA offers so many resources for teachers. And I know after I had gotten my master's and I was teaching in Wisconsin, I just went to every workshop. I traveled across the state going to workshops and, you know, master classes and concerts. Just because you have a degree in something <laughs> doesn't mean you know everything or very much yet. And you need to keep learning and keep investigating. And so that's, I don't know, I feel like that's one of the huge benefits of MTNA, plus the ability to talk to other people and, well, how do you teach this and how do you solve that? And I still remember being in Savannah, having a very heated conversation with someone about how they played scales. And I was getting up in arms because they believed you should play with flat fingers. And I thought, well, Horovitz does that, but not many of us sound quite as good as Horovitz. So I'm not sure that's going to work for me. <laughs> but anyway, the fun things piano teachers talk about, right? But I can't recommend it highly enough. I, I just think MTNA is like a lifeline for teachers. And I think it's a necessity. What a great plug for um, those who are listening, who are interested in learning. Um, about MTNA and GMTA. And one thing that I learned as VP of membership is I need to cold call people and tell them to join our organization because apparently that works. <laughs> it, it scared me. So I thought, oh, <laughs> I guess I better do it. <laughs> I'll try that strategy. and uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll keep everyone posted to see how that works out for our membership okay. numbers. I'll wait to hear <laughs> Well, Martha, this has been a delightful conversation. It's very nice to meet you virtually, and it's very nice to hear your stories and to hear about your life and to hear about your philosophy and your ideas. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I wish you happy teaching and happy students. Okay, thank you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs>